I think, especially if you're someone who wants to succeed in the food industry, the willingness to get in there to learn and understand what's happening on the ground is so important. And I, I wouldn't trade it. I mean, they've been some of my most fun jobs. And I always sort of try to get that, that note in there for anyone who's sort of trying to figure it out and is interested. Welcome to The Irresistible Factor, the podcast for brands in the health and wellness space who want to be irresistible, not only to consumers, but to investors and retailers. Here we talk to successful entrepreneurs about the inspiring stories that help them start and grow their awesome brands. And we also talk to investors, leaders in private equity, and retail buyers about what makes brands irresistible to them. Hi, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of The Irresistible Factor. Today is a special day in my mind because we are talking with Ellie Truesdale, who is a partner now at Almanac Insights and was the former director of local brands and product innovations at Whole Foods. So she's going to have lots of great advice and insights for us. So thank you so much for joining us, Ellie. Welcome. Thank you, Christy. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to chat with you. So can we start by you just telling us what you're doing right now at Almanac and then potentially what you've done and how you got there? A little background. Yes, absolutely. So right now um, at Almanac, we are a a small venture fund, a fully food-focused venture fund in New York City, um, founded by David Barber, who's the co-founder of the Blue Hill Restaurants. Um, Some people are familiar with Blue Hill at Stone Barns, which is an amazing experience. And, you know, it's been so interesting. I sort of fell into the investor and investment world, but my 10 years at Whole Foods, which we can talk about, really did lead me to venture investing. Um, I, it's been sort of an interesting journey being so immersed in young brands. Um, you know, my, my role at Whole Foods was really unusual. I was first the local forager and then the global director of local brands and product innovation for the company. And, and so really led emerging brand identification, finding trends, and also ushering in new companies and new brands, hopefully for them to succeed and to scale. Mm-hmm. Um, in some cases that meant they just became large, robust regional brands. In some cases, they became national and global brands and have seen incredible exits, you know, brought in RX Bar and Purely Elizabeth and Spike Seltzer and a bunch of great uh, businesses and Hugh Kitchen, who just had an amazing exit to Mondelez. So really ran the gamut in terms of size and scale of brands and companies that I worked with. Still, some of the companies that I introduced are selling to five stores only uh, at Whole Foods, like have, have remained really, really small over, you know, it's 12 years later now, and some have um, become globally recognized and have become really, really big. So through that time, and almost acting as a small brand consultant internally for Whole Foods, that's sort of how I saw my role. And I was just immersed in the sort of life of entrepreneurs, founders, all within food and beverage and across every category. So that was the other really unique thing about my job, both as forager and then in my global role, I was partnered to and worked across every category of the store. So certainly focused on CPG, on consumer goods and sort of center store, but I worked with produce, meat, seafood, and bakery whole body. So I have sort of a generalist outlook and know enough about every category and their production quality, quality standards, um, pieces that we required at Whole Foods to help me vet and sort of consider or scrutinize brands in a little bit of a different way. Um, and, and that really led me to 
as I was leaving Whole Foods, being in a position where I had a lot of different venture funds uh, recruiting me, uh, more than anything for deal flow, it was sort of naive at the time uh, what my network uh, provides. But I think just being the go-to person at Whole Foods for that many years to launch young brands built a lot of trust, a lot of goodwill among the founder community. And that's led me to investing now where at Almanac, my role is um, pretty hands-on, like really like to be an operational value add investor. We we typically try to invest in companies where we're going to play some role. Um, we're really not the hands-off investors just because mm-hmm. We're, you know, we're experts in food. That's that's sort of why we're investing in the first place. So it's been three years in this seat and first as an advisor and two years as, as a partner. And it's been fantastic just really being able to leverage what I learned at Whole Foods and just continuously watching sort of the ebb and flow of where money is going, where and what needs uh, investing in and across the value chain and across the food system. So I definitely focus a bit on consumer, but really love to look uh, upstream and downstream as well. So that's really cool. And, you know, when you describe your role at Whole Foods, it doesn't really surprise me that you took the path that you did, although it does, it wouldn't normally seem like a traditional path. Like you were doing something in the store, you were helping brands with product innovation and getting new brands into the store. And so going to um, a VC fund makes a lot of sense, right? If you really think about it, but it probably isn't something, a path that most people think they're going to wind up on. Yeah. Yeah. I think it was somewhat incidental. Um, and, and I was not quite sure of it either. When I was leaving uh, Whole Foods at the end of 2017 and considering what my next step would be, I was not ready to go all in and join a big private equity fund or um sort of a generalist firm that that was not as interesting to me. And I knew that I wanted to sort of dip my toes. So that's where I was. I was lucky to spend a year, year and a half as an advisor trying to understand and sort of see how it would go at Almanac um, if I were to take a a full time role. And um, then it really did start to click that so much of my experience, ability to build brands, identify, you know, really strong ones uh, and, and play that hands-on operational true partner role um, along with founders has become really, really valuable and pretty strategic in terms of how we win deals. It makes so much sense to me when you talk about it that way. So what kind of, what size brands do you guys focus on? We are, we're a little bit broad. Um, We're lucky to not have really strict mandates um, just based on our LP group. Um, we invest pre-revenue and in seed rounds, we've invested all the way up to D and E rounds based on prior relationship and probably as a follow-on. So, but I would say our sweet spot is really in the series A, series B. Um, so let's say anywhere from five to 20 million in revenue. Okay. And when you say that you're really hands-on, can you talk a little bit about what that means? Yeah. Um, I think, you know, depending on the stage of the business, uh, I guess a couple of examples, you know, we led um, the Foxtrot Series B, which was our biggest investment to date and um, a bit of a later stage to play such a hands-on role, but it's it's uh, aligned perfectly with my experience and background. Foxtrot is this incredible um, newer, newer concept. It's been, you know, been around about 
eight years, but new enough um, that's reinventing the corner store or the convenience store. Uh-huh. Really yeah. led, they you know have an amazing one hour on demand delivery service as well as these really great small footprint stores. And the idea is that you're walking into that corner store and getting sort of everything you need. It's perfectly curated for what you would need to pick up at the end of the day or to fill in a grocery shop um, and just to sort of surprise and delight you. That's that's a big part of their mission. Uh, and in leading that deal, it was really um, important that the CEO, who I have a great relationship with, knew that I was going to be playing a strong role on that assortment um, selection, really focus on their curation and how they're thinking about such a small footprint. You know, their stores are 2,500 to 4,000 square feet um, compared to, you know, my days at Whole Foods were around 50,000 square feet on average. So a really, really tight and strict um, assortment of products, but it just so uh, requires a lot of discipline and a lot of understanding what your customer really wants. Um, You know, what do they want out of their sort of corner store bodega that they can get delivered in under an hour? So that's been really um, a great one to work very side by side with them on product, on private label supplier procurement. Um, We can get into this, but have some... um, experience on the manufacturing and co-packing side. And so I have a lot of really solid relationships across the industry there. Um, and, and Foxtrot has a really strong initiative right now, a big strategy to develop their private label um, product set. And they're at a really interesting time. Most private label is, you know, when you're talking about the Kroger, Walmart, Whole Foods of the world, they're much, much larger runs. Even Whole Foods had a hard time based on the, you know, 500, sub 500 store door yeah. count. They had a hard time getting line time for their private label products because they just weren't big enough. So for a store like Foxtrot, yeah. uh, 10 going on 11 stores, <laughs> it's wow. a whole different proposition. So you have to have really close relationships with producers in Italy who are willing to do that sort of run for you. Small co-packers who are you know, just considering or going into the private label um, realm. And that's that's been very beneficial in, in working with them and identifying prospects. So... Oh, there are so many things to talk about. I have a million questions for you. Talk about you going into this role um, with your background versus the kind of people that traditionally wind up in this role, normally financial background. So can you talk about that? Because it's interesting and it makes so much sense to me, but that's not how it normally goes. Yeah, I think I come at it very differently than yeah. a lot of more traditional financial minds and the you know, very schooled, um, gone through the MBA program. And frankly, like I was lucky to skip over a lot of those steps. I didn't have to do the analyst jobs. I didn't have to yeah. do that. Um, partially because it wouldn't, I wouldn't have been very good at it. You know, that's not my, that's not the skill set I bring, but what's been so, uh, valuable and a nice surprise is that because I'm coming to an investment with a very different lens an operational one, one that understands the food system, how these things work, not so much um, the macro economic or financial, just to the nuts and bolts and the numbers lineup of this business. We end up being really good co-investors and find ourselves in great positions to um, partner with other investment funds who are really strong and excellent in, in some of those areas. And we sort of bring the value add, we leverage our network, we are hands-on, we sort of play a role where we can. So yeah, I think I end up, um, you know, I'm, I'm certainly learning quite a bit on that side and, and like flexing that muscle, but it's been really valuable. And I think 
I tend to be on the phone with our founders and our teams a lot. Like they, you know, it's just sort of a constant, um, hopefully I, I think they get a sense from the Almanac team that we're sort of equally as um, aligned and understanding as some like fellow founders and entrepreneurs yeah. who understand. Yeah. Certainly David has built his own business. I've um, built a, a pet brand. And so there's that, a little bit of that camaraderie of like, you get what we're going through. I don't need to sort of try to put on a show for you of what's yeah. happening. I just, I have a problem and I need help fixing it. Um, yeah. And that's really what a lot of my job ends up being. <laughs> And you know, it works too. I mean, that's the other part that's really interesting. You've, you've helped so many brands get launched, even though that wasn't your exact job that you know what works and what doesn't. So um, I'm curious to hear a little bit about that. Like what makes the brand really irresistible enough to get from five whole food stores to national whole food, food distribution? And then what makes a brand irresistible enough for you as a member of the Almanac team to really want to invest in it? Yeah, it's, it's a great question thinking about both of those things at the same time, um, partially because my years at Whole Foods 2008 to 2017 were such a specific time. I feel really, really lucky that I was in such an amazing job and during those years because it was as natural and organic CPG took off, you know, yes, yes. every legacy brand was being disrupted and challenged by these great younger um in many cases, better value proposition brands. And I was mostly the person you came to to help you launch and be successful. So during those years, I think I had a very specific understanding of what the market needed, what our shelves needed, um, which is pretty different now. There's been such a glut and saturation of quote unquote better for you brands that I have a much, much higher threshold or tolerance for the next pasta sauce or bar or beverage that's pitched to me, it it is, it's really, really hard to seem exceptional with just a straight sort of new food or beverage um, consumer brand. And so I do look at it a little bit differently in that sense, but it's also been so helpful to have the foundation of, I touched every category. So I can say right off the bat, you know, when a non-dairy ice cream or a new um, protein bar is being pitched, off, uh, in my own memory, in my head, with let alone doing sort of like a data sweep, I can think of 20 or 25 competitors and I'm not seeing enough of a differentiator here. You know, one of my favorite slash least favorite things to see on a slide deck is when people do the grids of, you know, what their products meet yeah. and what the competitors do or don't. And, you know, it'll end up being 15 brands. So you're already admitting there are 15 competitors in your category, yeah. <laughs> at least. Yeah top 15 and you maybe check off one box of the 10 that the others don't, you know, it's just, it it really feels sort of silly to be looking um, at such detailed attributes that, that probably aren't going to move you forward. To me, it's a question of if if we're talking about a, you know, a coffee brand um, and yours is both reinforced Alliance certified and shade grown and certified organic. It's like, you know, there's, there's probably the opportunity for one of these bigger players to also in the future progress to that one final attribute that you guys are sort of using as your hook. Yeah. So I'm really, I have like a, because I was so lucky to be immersed in, I mean, I, I worked with thousands and thousands of companies and that's the case. If you're a buyer at Whole Foods, you end up tasting thousands of products over your mm-hmm. years. So it's, it's good because it builds, builds a little discipline around, okay, what really is special or stands out. Um, and I think now at Almanac, they're, 
it, the bar is set so much higher, you know, there's, there's such a focus on uh, beyond just the product itself. Certainly like already you need to meet the table stakes requirements of it needs to be delicious, like absolutely um, amazing in, in taste and flavor. Like that's sort of the first and foremost around food and, and beverage brands. Um, but beyond that, there really needs to be a value proposition that moves the product beyond what someone can make at home. I actually think there's such an exceptional and specific quality to food businesses that people sometimes forget that it's one of the only businesses that you at home can probably most likely replicate this product. Yeah. yeah. You know, tech, fashion, healthcare, th those are products that people can be can be doing um, in their in their home kitchens. And so if you're trying to put something on the market that is just a replication of what you make at home, there needs to be a real signal and message to the consumer that this is so much better tasting than anything you could ever make. It's more convenient. It's in a better form factor. It's more nutritionally dense. It's prices. What, you know, you really have to think about that matrix of why would this person, why would a person buy this rather than attempt making it themselves? And of course, now most Americans are so ready for, you know, value added, ready to eat and ready to cook things. So, so there's um, a known consumer demand there, but you really have to be offering something that's unique. I mean, the number of chocolate chip cookies that, that people sort of try to launch, but you know what, like, let's look at Levan, like they've done phenomenally well because it is such a rich, indulgent, special yeah. recipe yeah. and their brand has been phenomenal. Um, yeah. they've been able to go beyond just retail and open up a frozen brand. So I think sort of to answer your question about what makes a brand irresistible now as an investor it certainly there's the the product its attributes and the value proposition and then it really gets into a lot of these other areas of um what are you doing to set your brand apart in terms of whether it's content it's digitally it's um you're building a community your engagement with your customer and how much you know them and why um what channels you're really leveraging to build that community and to continuously um, grow traction or just grow loyalty. Um, mm -hmm. That's the enormous piece. Uh, and then there's a huge, one thing that's been really helpful in terms of my time at Whole Foods and that has um, moved into the investment world is team and, and really understanding whether this team has the ability to grow this into something big. And I say that both because half of my job at Whole Foods, I felt was actually um, vetting people. And, and I don't know how many other people in my role did that, but I saw a real need to sort of suss out if teams were prepared for the just requirements that a, a national retailer bring and the expense and the headache and the you know, administrative needs of, of a big retailer. It was important for me to um, go through that and understand if the entrepreneur or their team really had um, the wherewithal and, and were equipped to grow with us. And similarly now, uh, it, it's so much about the team. It's similarly with food products because they are something that people can replicate and are constantly being iterated. There's, it's almost, um, you almost press more on the team than on the the product itself because you feel like they can they'll make or break the um, trajectory of the brand. Can you tell if there's dysfunction among a team pretty quickly? 
it's funny. There are some probably some of the time, you know, you never want to like completely categorically say this, but I think even on um, pitch calls, which of course the past 15 months, it's been all zoom calls. You can watch how a team works together. There's sort of choreography, whether they have it down of who owns what. And if you're watching a team that is constantly either talking over each other or wanting to always add, oh, but let me also just let, you know, one more thing about this that this person, you know, didn't say or didn't cover in their job. I think you can sort of learn and see, but but that also doesn't, I would say that's a really important thing to recognize and observe in a team. It might also mean they're a bit younger, greener, or still navigating some of those pieces. And in some cases, it's uh, not well done fundraising but it, you know, they, they function really well otherwise operationally. So I think for me and, and I, at Almanac, we really do try to spend a lot of time with teams or have known them for many years, a lot of our investments. Um, actually one really gratifying and fun thing for me is that at least four or five of our portfolio companies are brands that I launched and introduced to Whole Foods many, many years ago. So I've known the founders for a long time. And in many cases, David has known, these founders for a long time. So that makes all the difference. And then, and then, yeah, you try to spend as much time with the team to see how they've orchestrated and really, you know, set their subject matter experts up and how they've licensed them to own their own, you know, verticals of of the business. So interesting. So do you think that a brand today that doesn't have a really truly unique value proposition, but has a great team, has done a good job with branding, really knows who they are, understands their consumer. Can they be successful without a unique value proposition right now? It's That's such an interesting thing to think about. Um, in some cases, I think, yes, just in the, in the case of the value proposition doesn't feel revolutionary, but they still have a great product. So I, I think LeVan or some of these other, um, right. that's what made me think of that. No, a- yeah. Even, um, you know, super coffee or something, some of these brands that have just taken off, uh, liquid death, this, this water canned water product, like some of these things that feel as though they're redundant or why would we ever need another water? They're doing something really special to build a brand. They're going at it through a different channel. They're attracting a different customer. So yeah, I, I do actually think that's possible. Um, and and it can, I, I actually, I think Dream Pops is another great example when you look on the face of it of popsicles that are in a different, a little bit of a different shape and form. Yeah. And they have done a phenomenal job of getting themselves out there and building a community and just being in the zeitgeist. There's, there's a lot of value there. Yeah, interesting. And then, you know, you worked on really and and were introduced to or introduced to us a lot of really important brands that are now have been, I mean, just taken off so much that they got bought by big companies like RX Bar. Um, I think you mentioned a couple of others. Would they be brands that would be interesting today? Or are they like, I mean, I, RX Bar is one of my favorite. I love their peanut butter. I know it didn't, it wasn't the hugest success, but it's my favorite. So I love them. But I wonder if they got launched right now in the with all of the things that are happening and all of the brands that are just like that, would they be successful today? It's, um, 
RX Bar was really exceptional. I remember meeting their COO and seeing the package. I, I tasted the product. I was like, oh, this is unusual in form factor that you're using eggs. And then immediately saw their recent rebrand, which is what we all know of the no BS listing it on the front. And I, I said, I was like, if anyone had asked me if I would ever consider bringing in another protein bar again, I would have said, absolutely not. And we have to bring in this product. Like I just knew that it was really special. And that was the inclusion of egg whites, the clean ingredient deck, the how easy they were making it for consumers on the front of pack. And so today, you know, I don't think anyone really has replicated or mastered what what they have. Certainly some people feel like it's not a great tasting product or it's not as clean as they put it out there to be in the front of the label, which I totally agree with. Um, But on the other hand, I do, I think that they were just really, they, they jumped on and, and sort of built something that was really unique. They'd already built this amazing community through CrossFit and other Mm -hmm. fitness channels. And that was really um, amazing in terms of their growth. So it's hard to say whether today it would feel as exciting, but on the other hand, I don't think there's been another bar to really come in and do what they have done. Um, The one brand I would say right now that I am really obsessed with and think has the opportunity to sort of serve that role. It's a, it's minorly more indulgent, but there's a a brand in Canada called midday squares. Oh, I know. I know it. I know it. The product is phenomenal. It is, um, so delicious. It has this amazing texture because on top it's thick, sort of crunchy chocolate. And on the bottom, it's a little bit um, squishy. The ingredient deck is incredibly clean. They're free from natural flavors, which is something I really look for. I think it's very, very hard to make a great product without any natural flavors and very few CPG brands do it. And they have, um, and they've also just got this amazing social uh, media strategy and, and they are constantly putting out content and showing sort of the grind of building a young company. So I think Midday Squares is sort of the, maybe it's, it's our, of this decade, um, X bar and it's, it's a phenomenal, it's exceptional. And it, it has sort of moved the quality standard even further. Interesting. Um, so there's so much activity. And like you said, there are just literally brands on top of brands on top of brands on top of brands. What would you tell people who are thinking about launching a brand in the food space right now? Any advice? I think really trying to ask yourself, where are you in the landscape of other products? How many competitors could you say are out there? And what are you offering that's so exceptional that people really would trade up, trade down, for you, you know, I, I think there are plenty of examples that, that we've talked about of, of really being able to do that, but there needs to be a reason. Is it, you know, access and distribution points? Is it partnering with Grubhub and DoorDash and, you know, 15 minute grocery delivery, and now you're the only brand in that category that is available. And so people start, you know, start to learn about you or become hooked on you for that reason. Is it format and, and where you're finding, like, you know, I think, um, I think Daily Harvest is such an exceptional company and how thoughtful the smoothie is still. I, you know, I order a lot of different products from them, but I still think the smoothie is just sort of genius in that it's, you can see each and every individual piece of produce in there. You're filling it up to the top. You're using that same cup. It it is just so functional 
And I think a, a brand really that people should use as an example of this was incredibly thoughtful for how people now live their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's been been really effective. So I, I guess, yeah, for any brand that's that's looking to launch, like really trying to get a sense of the landscape, how many people, players, competitors you're up against, and really just trying to to prove that yours is better or it's offering some new occasion that will convert or just open up, I guess, a new, a whole new eating occasion for, mm-hmm. for a large set of customers. And, and the COVID situation, I mean, obviously it made the world crazy for a year for CPG brands for more than a year. And some of them did unbelievably well and some of them really struggled. And now coming out of it, you know, I'm just reading article after article and we know it's true. The level of awareness was heightened about health and wellness. And so consumers desire to take some level of control over that was accelerated really quickly. Um, I mean, I think that was, obviously it was happening and you were a part of the forefront of that where people wanted healthier products and um, all the things that got launched became a, it was a, it was a movement. Um, But now it's a movement that includes a lot more people than it ever has before. And so I wonder two things. One is, do you think it's going to last or will there be a lot of drop off like there always is once people forget? Um, And if it is going to last, what does that mean for the, for brands that are, that are coming into the business at this point in time, or even for the ones that are there? Yeah, I, I was thinking it about it a bit more for the brands that are already there. I think one thing that's very encouraging, there was a report that came out recently to show the increase in organic product consumption and sales at an all time high um, and, and organic produce being at uh, 15% of American sales, which is dramatic increase and, and really yeah. encouraging and great. Um, I think the other encouraging stat right now is that most of the brands that, that I launched and we as a team in you know the 2010s <laughs> launched at Whole Foods and in the natural channel are now seeing incredible growth in conventional. Mm-hmm. And you know that just means going into Kroger, Walmart, um, even some of the you know Target and some of these these big box stores, which is really to me exciting that um, where there's less opportunity for some of these emerging brands and better for you or just sort of this uh, you know cleaner product that's offering something hopefully healthful and nutritious. If you can get the price point right, there's a huge opportunity in conventional because most of America wants it now. So that yeah. is really, really exciting and encouraging to me just because, you know, so much of my work was relegated to sort of a certain customer and a certain yeah. um, demographic and a certain income level that and value set, I would say people who really, really prioritized food um, and, and their health in shopping um, at Whole Foods and sort of that if we can expand that customer base and if, and if brands that have done incredibly well with this much, much smaller demographic and now have the opportunity to expand to half of the majority of Americans because there's real interest there and we can work on sort of the supply chains, the infrastructure, all of the pieces that are needed to bring some of the costs down, that's an enormous um, win for, mm-hmm. the, for the country as yes, I think, People are really interested in how they can improve their health, often feel like they don't have 
the access, the education, or sort of the tools to do it. And many of these products that are really ready to eat, highly convenient and highly nutritious are extremely expensive. So there's been some really good progress there and hopefully more to come. Cool. I still have a million questions, but I'm going to, I'm going to only ask you two more. So three brands to watch right now in your mind, favorite three. Oh God. A couple. I don't know if they've been your top three or not, but <laughs> um, yes, I, so I would say midday squares is, is in my top three. I, I just on a taste, I'm a real chocolate lover. If you love chocolate, follow and order midday squares. Um, another one that I really love and I don't even consume is athletic brewing. Um, they're a non-alcoholic beer company, but they're really taking a unique approach of craft beer free from alcohol. Their brand is excellent. They are all over the place. They're doing incredibly well. And I, I'm not even a beer drinker, <laughs> um, but I just, I love what they're doing. I think it's an amazing offering. Um, and, and they're great. And then I guess, you know, the other one, this is a little bit unconventional, but should just be watched. There's a, there's a brand and company called Sun Noodle. They're in centuries at this point, uh, old. It's been many, many years of noodle products. It's a family-run business. And um, they supply all of the best ramen shops in the country and in oh. some cases across the world. But they have a consumer brand that we worked on together at Whole Foods that's starting to gain even more traction now. Um, so it's Sun Noodle Fresh Ramen. Uh, it comes with a little tare pack that you just add hot water to and you really end up feel like you're eating the best ramen you can have in a restaurant at home. Um, they also do really interesting and unique noodle shapes. They use different types of flours, different protein levels and combos of buckwheat and whole wheat flour, et cetera. So they're, they're really a wonderful family business and it's also a really delicious product. Cool, awesome. And do you wanna talk, I know you're involved with Made by Nacho. Do you wanna just mention that a little bit and talk about that for a sec? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so Made by Nacho, I was lucky to co-found a pet brand with Bobby Flay, the celebrity chef. Um, I've known Bobby for years in during my years at Whole Foods because I was the person launching so many brands. A lot of chefs came to me to launch their products with us at Whole Foods. So I worked with the Momofuku team, worked with Blue Hill and uh, David to launch their yogurts, um, among many others, the Roberta's team to launch their frozen pizzas. And so Bobby and I had known each other and he sort of always kept in the back of his mind if ever he did something in consumer that I would be you know, the person to tap. And so he came to me about two years ago with this idea around Nacho Flay, his cat who has built his own organic following and his own little pet celebrity on Instagram. Um, and he said, you know, I feel like there aren't great options of cat food out there. I care a ton about feeding people nutritiously, tastily, and I just don't even really know what to feed Nacho, let alone tell other people to feed their cats. And I think that's, uh, you know, there's an opening there. Plus, we have this amazing sort of pet <laughs> pet influencer to be the, the face of the brand. And so, you know, the more I thought about it, while I've never done pet, uh, it will be my one and only for and pet, I, I really saw that there was an interesting opportunity. I, I did some research on innovation in the pet space and largely cat has been left behind because yeah. it's a smaller market. Um, they're harder to please. You know, there's a real reason that there's not a lot of innovation in cat food because cats are quote unquote finicky and picky. Um, but we sort of really took that as a challenge. You know, Bobby's one of the most famous chefs in America. And so he wanted to really build products and devise and formulate something that he 
knew to be sort of culinarily driven things that Nacho loved that he would make and eat at home. Um, so it's been so fun. We've, we've worked on it for two years. We launched in April direct to consumer and then in all 1400 pet smart doors in the U S a few weeks after, um, we have an assortment of 18 products. Um, and it's been, it's been so great. You know, the, the one, I think really important choice that we made was to name the brand made by Nacho and to really sort of use the idea of Nacho as CEO and founder as the this sort of wink and and joke of the brand but the idea is that you know the humanization of pets has been this incredible trend and so what better than to sort of humanize Nacho into being this businessman founder figure and and so it's just been really fun like we have a lot of fun with that in content and sort of just beginning, but it's it's gone incredibly well. The PetSmart launch has been phenomenal and we'll just sort of constantly be putting out new products and continuing to hopefully offer really something that cats aren't seeing. And, and more than anything, it's getting cats to eat something that's actually nutritionally yeah. uh, appropriate. That's been the hardest part, but luckily really we, we landed with our first set of wet and dry products, we focused and utilized bone broth heavily. And that's been huge, both Amazing. for their hydration and for the palatability. So yeah, we've been so, so happy with how it's gone. Cool. Congratulations on that. That's exciting. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Awesome. Anything you want to add before we wrap? I don't want to take any more of your time. This has been amazing though. And I really appreciate your time, but if there's anything else you'd like to add, I'd love to hear it. I'm sure um, everyone would. Yeah, no, the, I guess the one, the only thing I'd add is just a comment or a note you made earlier of that my path certainly has not been what a lot of people would expect. I do love the chance to talk to people who probably wouldn't expect that they're going in a certain direction. You know, I, my first job out of college, I was selling fruits and vegetables on the side of the road at a summer stand and I absolutely loved it. And it got me hooked in to food. I wanted to understand agriculture. I wanted to understand supply chains. I sort of just had this really incredible experience that summer. And for a year or two, it sort of felt like that was a, maybe the wrong path after having just gotten you know, my bachelor's degree. And a lot, a lot of my friends were going on very structured paths of investment banking, yes. lawyers, you know, consultants. Yep. Um, and I was then working at a produce store for, for the first year out of college. Um, but it's been incredibly valuable experience. It um, really helped me get my first job at Whole Foods, which was in marketing in a store. Um, and all of those experiences have laddered up to this. So I think, especially if you're someone who wants to succeed in the food industry, yeah. the willingness to get in there to learn and understand what's happening on the ground is so important. And I, I wouldn't trade it. I mean, they've been some of my most fun jobs. Uh, and I just, I always sort of try to get that, that note in there for anyone who's sort of trying to figure it out and is interested. Yeah. in. Food. Well, I love it because you have gotten to a place where if you had thought about it, when you were working at that produce stand, you probably wouldn't have said, Oh, that's where I'm going to wind up. There's no way you would have known. And your willingness to do whatever it took and to learn the business, I think has really, obviously it's, it's turned you into the person you are today. And made you incredibly successful. And I think that is really good advice because there are a lot of ways at it. It isn't just one path for every single person. And I think that's really helpful to hear. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's not always that linear. And in yeah. fact, sometimes just following that path can be 
makes you a little too rigid to maybe be open to the opportunities that that allow for some of those steps so yeah uh, it's it's been a very fun ride (laughs) awesome well thank you so much i cannot thank you enough it's been amazing talking to you and hopefully we'll be able to do it again because i think it's really been incredible awesome no thank you so much for having me and definitely we'll we'll stay in touch on this and other things